Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On Investing, a podcast dedicated to providing long-term investors in the stock market the clarity that they need to withstand all the noise and distractions they face on a daily basis. I am your host, Daniel Paris, and I hope that you will join me for periodic discussions with investment professionals, as well as my own musings on investment theory and capital market practices. My guest today is James Garland, longtime president of the Jeffrey Company. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Uh, a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So the Jeffrey Company is a family office, which gave you a lot of opportunity to think about and practice the art of investing over an extended period. But before we get to that, I just want to make sure people understand what a family office is. Some of our listeners will know, but but some will not. Can you kind of clarify that and, and the implications of having that particular perch in the investment industry? A family office is is an office that's uh, that runs investments for just one family. Uh, in our case. Uh, the uh, there was a fellow named Joseph A. Jeffrey who set up a very successful uh, manufacturing business in the 1870s, and he happened to put all his shares of the company in a what's called a generation skipping trust in 1914. Generation skipping trusts live a long time. This one lived for more than a century, and the trust was uh, the in- income only the income from the trust could be sent to family members. It's a very large family, by the way. We have 400 family members at the moment. So, uh, since 1914, this trust and the Jeffrey Company itself have been managed trying to provide cash flows for this family that are somewhat stable and, and, and grow over time. We call ourselves a family endowment fund. There are huge family offices that do a lot of services for family members. They'll, they'll hire the maids and, and uh, lease the private jets and, and, and do all the paperwork for the household help and, and, and arrange for vacations for the kids and all that. Uh, the Jeffrey Company is just a tiny one. All we do is manage uh, these assets. And by the way, the, the Mr. Jeffrey's company was sold in, for cash in 1974, so we invested the cash in stocks and bonds. We looked like a private family-owned mutual fund. It's an interesting time to have invested uh, the cash in 74. That must have uh, involved a fair, a fair degree of uh, uh, nerves of steel. But one of the benefits or the particularities, let's, it's going to be a benefit, but we'll call it a particularity initially, is the time horizon of a, a family office, in particular the Jeffrey Company, uh, your investment horizon is in perpetuity, the next 100 years, 1,000 years. How, how would you characterize it? In perpetuity. Uh, although estate taxes and capital gains taxes and all that will whittle us down. We won't live forever, but that we're, we're, we're planning as though we could live forever. Uh, wise, wise and optimistic. Uh, it, it's important to note that, I think, because a lot of investors don't have that time horizon. But that time horizon opens the door to certain approaches to investing uh, that I think are different and really important for many investors, the wealthy affluent or just those uh, thinking in terms of their retirement accounts. Uh, because the the background time horizon with CNBC Squawk Box on and uh, uh, advertisements for online brokerages and the statements that one receives and day trading, the, the typical holding period for stocks has fallen to, whether it's milliseconds, minutes, hours, days, uh, uh, weeks, or months, it's still not in perpetuity. And most investors are looking at what happened this year, this quarter, if they're looking long-term at all. 
that's a striking contrast in time horizons. It is. In fact, the Jeffrey Company started investing some surplus cash in stocks in 1948. So we have we have some dating from the 1940s, uh, most dating from the 1970s or later. The last time we counted, or last time we checked, on a dollar-weighted basis, our average holding period is about 17 years. Are you holding? We uh, we have done a similar exercise in some of the, the products that I manage, and we find that there's a tail to it. That is, some holdings yeah. only last for a few years, but other holdings are are in the portfolio almost since inception. Do you have any uh, holdings from 1948 left that you're aware of? We have, we have several. I'm, uh, uh, but the one that stands out that is Merck. We bought Merck in 1949. Uh, for every dollar we paid for Merck to buy it, we're getting this year about $50 in dividends. Oh, that's, that, that, that's the, okay, that we, we have our sound clip, folks. We can stop the interview right now. That was, that's, there you go. But, so, but of course, we couldn't invest everything in Merck. We owned some things. General Motors was a growth stock in the 1940s, 1950s. We owned General Motors for a while, but some companies you have, some companies do get old. The, uh, if, if you try hard to find companies that can self-renew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that experience of having this this uh, time horizon and this long history has uh, led you to, to doing a fair amount of writing, communicating in industry. I, I was even before I saw this particular piece uh, that I'm going to refer to, I was aware of you as uh, what some might refer to as a kind of a, a wise man in the industry. So uh, I wasn't surprised then when uh, I was pointed to an article that you wrote uh, for the CFA Institute called A Cash Flow Focus on Endowments and Trusts that came out uh, last year. And that's uh, the article that I'm uh, hoping we could uh, focus in on in this conversation because it, it seems to encapsulate uh, substantially the, uh, the benefits of the long-term horizon and how you fundamentally look at this enterprise of, of uh, intergenerational uh, um, wealth management. Sounds good. So the, yep. So let's, let's dive right into the article. The standard way to look at assets is the asset price. That's the share price. That's as simple as it gets, um, for endowments and trusts. That's, uh, 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 guides. And for most investors, that seems to guide almost all of their behavior. Uh, you're suggesting instead that, that endowments should begin to look at what you call the fecundity, uh, that is using an agricultural term, but but really uh, look at what others might refer to as incomes uh, from all sorts of assets, whether it's real estate, equities, or bonds. Can you kind of provide an overview of how you got to this this heretical position of, of looking primarily at fecundity rather than looking at what everyone else looks at. Why do you have to be so different, Jim? We, everyone else looks at asset prices and they go up and down every day and you should be satisfied with that. Why are you not? We're lucky. We were forced into it by this trust that owned us, the, the income only trust. We we're forced to, to create income somehow for the family. And it's a much easier way to create income when the companies themselves send you cash than to own stocks that pay nothing and try to figure out how much you, you can afford to pay to everybody that there's a, a uh, fecundity is a, I, I use the term fecundity because there are other terms people use I think I've, you mentioned using distributable cash flows or something that are that work perfectly well but it's it's nice to have a, a word that stands out that's memorable that people will remember and that so people have to look up yes yes uh, then by, uh, and to elaborate what you said the fecundity of an asset is the 
is the amount of cash that it's capable of sending and it does send you. The fecundity of a bond is, uh, depending on how you measure it, say it's, it's the interest and the fecundity of stocks, the dividends, and those are, that's not quite true in either case, but it's close. Whereas the fecundity of, uh, oh, of Tesla is zip. Tesla, Tesla earns no money. Uh, it, it ain't got any cash to send you if it wanted to. Uh, it has no profits on which to could, uh, you could you could hope for. The fecundity of Tesla is the same as the fecundity of a, of a one kilogram gold bar. Nothing. But it can go from zero to 60 in three seconds. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, when let's contrast that notion of a, a gold bar or a Tesla with uh, assets that distribute income. The point is that a family office or an endowment, or to some extent, this is one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on the show, because I think your points go well beyond simply family offices. You may choose to disagree there. But the point is that uh, if you're trying to manage a family office and distributions to the family members or a 401k in distributions there, um, you can't really you know, uh, deliver a light bulb of the Tesla, or you can take a small sliver <laughs> of the gold and go down to the local jeweler and they'll put it on a scale and give you some money from it. Yep. But um, normally what happens with, uh, and has been the case from 1969, I want to get to that in a moment, but really for the last 50 years, endowments and trusts, and to some extent, retirement accounts are all based on it. If you have a monthly need as a retiree or the, the, the trust and endowment has a distribution need, you sell assets. You focus on a percentage of assets that you feel yes. the entity needs. And if you don't have enough income to meet that, you sell the assets and everyone's just counting on rising share prices to, to have that work out okay. And frankly, for the last 50 years, it probably has in many instances. But it's not a really sound theoretical approach. And you want to go through the reasons why the, the market value approach, although it's officially blessed by pretty much everyone, uh, is, is highly flawed? It, it, by the way, it's pretty much blessed by <laughs> colleges and universities, which on the side get so much money through the, the good the, the successful ones get so much money through the side door they can spend anything they want but but uh, uh that's that's i was thinking recently do you remember there's an igmar bergman film from the late 1950s called the seventh seal and in that movie there's a knight who sits across the table from death and i think they play a chess game or whatever they play a chess game on yes. the beach yes 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 uh famous scene for those who are old enough to remember it the uh, that that's what people are playing with their investments so that's that's uh, let's put you in the night seat and the great provider of investment returns on the other side. And, and you, you have a stack of uh, your life savings are in a pile right in front of you and you are going to offer them to the great provider. But first say great provider. Uh, if I give you my life savings, what will you do with them? And the great provider will say, Dan, you've got two choices. I can give you back as a, as a return. I can give you, uh, half of half of your return in cash every year, and half of it in a sealed envelope. The envelope says price change on it, but you can't open the price change envelope until you sell your your shares. Uh -huh. or, or I can give you I can give you just one larger envelope that says total return, but you can't mm -hmm. you can't open that envelope until you sell all of your shares. Which which one would you prefer? 
And uh, to me, it makes sense to, uh, by the way, uh, the, the great provider may not tell you, but you know that the, the theoretical value of each of those options is the same. But, yes. But the, but I would prefer to have the great provider give me half my return in cash and, and not, not bet on what's in the envelope. The envelope, even though it says price change or total return, if you, once you open it, it could have a negative number in there. And has for periods, uh, extended periods, uh, which if you're forced to sell assets in that point to meet a distribution requirement, you can do a, a lot of damage to whether it's a retirement account, an endowment account, or so forth, yep. as opposed to the steady, steady cash. Yep. Um, so basically, the market value approach is, and it's a common rule of thumb that many retail investors and retirees will be familiar with. It's something like you can afford to, to spend or you should think about or you should do the math and set it up so that 4 to 5% that you can afford to take out of your retirement account based on the market value of the account. And in your article in the uh, uh, CFA Institute brief, you, you point out why that's, why that's tricky. And basically, you don't have to meet uh, Ingmar Bergman on the beach. I forget the name of the actor who played the knight. Um, it's on the tip of my tongue. But the market goes up and down and that the, you can catch yourself at a bad time selling assets. Or if the market's – what I really think is interesting, when the market's very, very high, you end up overspending. Do you want to elaborate on that? I, most people would, would not have viewed that as a problem, but it ends up becoming one. When the markets are high, future returns will be low. And when the markets are low, future returns will be high. And basically, what you can spend are the returns you're going to earn. So – you should cut your spending rate, thinking percentage terms, when the market's really high, and you should increase it when the markets are low. But people base spending on market values tend to pick one number and stick with it. The, the Ford Foundation, you referred back to 1969, the Ford Foundation published a very influential uh, little book. Uh, this title, I forget. but uh, any case, I may have reference to it yep, here, yep, but uh, yep. it, it's in the article. Yep, yep. Uh, that, that said that, by the way, in the, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of big institutions are basing spending on, on just income, interest and dividends. And there's some problems with that, one, one of which was, by the way, inflation was speeding up in the 60s. So if you had a bond that paid you a 7% coupon, but interest rates were, I'm sorry, inflation was 5%, you should only spend two institutions mm-hmm, are spending mm-hmm. all seven. So there, there's some problems with what's going on. So the Ford Foundation, by the and I said, forget don't base spending on market value. I'm sorry, don't base spending on dividends and interest based on market values. And they said this, by the way, at the end of a 20-year great bull market. Uh, so I think subconsciously they may be thinking stock prices tend to go up. And I think, in fact, in the paper, the 1969 paper, they, they said that if you average market values over three years, you get through whatever little downturns come, come you'll be okay. Uh, <laughs> Except the, the market downturn that was about to happen in real terms was going to last from uh, the late 60s until uh, 1982, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, yep. Uh, so it was a longer period of time. In fact, I think in real dollars, it might have been 1990 or something like that. But in any case, yes. So, But everybody joined the bandwagon. Uh, and it tur- and basing spending on a fixed percentage of market values means you're going to ride a roller coaster. Market values go up and down in huge swings, even when you average them over three years. So the spending that people got from that process was very was much more volatile than most institutions want. Every time there's a serious downturn, 1970s, 1980s, a uh, little bit in the early 2000s, and of course the Great Recession 10 years ago, uh, these institutions have to cut their spending sometimes by a big amount, and it's painful, and it's not necessary. 
So the timing of that report, the fact that it came from the Ford Foundation, uh, influenced how endowments and trusts have been working, and to some extent, you could argue, is filtered through to retail investors. I think there are two, yes. two really important points to make in regard to this. First of all, I, as a historian, um, and regular listeners will, will uh, have heard me say this before, as a historian, one should know where your rules came from. And so now you know where the 4% rule, it's not actually specific to the retail investor 4% rule, but this notion that you would structure a spending policy around asset values came in a particular time and place and reflected the time and place that it came from, meaning after a 20-year bull market and because of inflation concerns specific to that time and place. It is not an immutable rule. It was not handed down on tablets thousands of years ago. It is... um, may be reflected in uh, educational institutions, but it's not in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. It happened at a particular time and place. And too often, I think investors aren't aware of where their practices came from and the fact that those practices might not actually be universal and timeless solutions to the human condition. I think you're right. So, but you're, but you're, you're actually right twice. We talked about 1969. Same thing happened at the end of the 1980s, 1990s. Great bull market. There's a fella in your town, uh, Robert Wolf, who's a lawyer in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. who uh, led a charge uh, to convince trustees to base trust spending on market values. Sa- same thing. End of a bull mm-hmm. market. Let's base spending on, on market values because the returns you've gotten from stocks over the 80s and 90s were double digits every every year. Uh, so why why look at these puny dividends? Let's let's have a party and base spending on market values instead. So and that's that's basically as you said the second point that yep. uh, it's capturing a particular moment in time which we determine to be maybe not uh, everlasting and typical of behavioral finance lessons which is to say people get very ebullient after a good run they think they're maybe better uh, than they are at the, at the art that they're practicing and in any even vaguely mean reverting universe uh, 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 the situation reverses and, and they end yep. up paying for it so this has a history. This market value spending has a history, and it actually may not be particularly good for you at circa 2020. In fact, it may not have been very good for you at various points in the past when the market went down. Yes. So you, having seen all of these cycles, come up with an alternative approach to how, uh, again, endowments and trusts might go about the tasks of meeting their obligations. You're, you're in the Jeffrey company had obligations to meet, and endowments and trusts and 401ks have obligations to meet. But you, you, you're suggesting a different approach that might be uh, a little bit more uh, sober and, and not caught up in the market cycles as much. Do you want to uh, highlight uh, or outline that? Well, uh, I'll pick on your last point about not being caught up in the market very much. There's a, uh, I mentioned that I used to work for this very large family, and so we had communication was an issue that spread all over the world. Uh, it's, I found a useful analogy to use for our situation. I would talk about, about chicken farmers and egg farmers. Chicken farmers raise chickens to sell them. So chicken farmers care very much about the market value of chickens. Egg farmers raise, have chickens rather, for the eggs they produce. They care very much about the quantity of eggs, but they don't give a darn about the market value of the chickens themselves. And the same thing works with, with investors. Uh, we, the Jeffrey Company, have been egg farmer investors. We tell the, told the family we are egg farmer investors. We don't care about market values. 
In fact, we'd, we'd prefer the market values go down because then our capital gains taxes would be less, et cetera, et cetera. So I would like to borrow that for use in my own work, except if I said uh, I prefer the capital prices, uh, capital uh, asset prices go down, then I, I will end up in trouble because <laughs> of the law. But I, I absolutely love uh, the analogy. Please yep. continue. Uh, so so we, we told family members during the uh, during the, the well the great the, the worst market drop we've had so far in my well the last 20 years or so was the, during the Great Recession market values dropped by half we kept telling family members it didn't matter it didn't matter it didn't matter it didn't matter and they, they got it we had no calls worrying about market values now it was a very serious recession and dividends did drop but dividends dropped Market values dropped 50%, and I think dividends dropped by 23% from the S&P 500. So dividends dropped half as much. By the way, that's the same thing that happened during the Great Depression. Market values dropped by about 80, 85%. Dividends dropped by half that. So dividend, dividends aren't always, won't always stay, uh, dividends can decline, but they decline less than market values. Uh, and so basing, basing, Spending on dividends is a more stable way to, to work, work your spending. You know, I, I uh, happen to be in the dividend business on the equity side, and, and so it is common for people to assume that there are risk-free dividends. Uh, it, is, it is not the case, uh, and you do see during the financial crisis in the 70s, and in the present time, dividends can be cut. Companies yep. just don't have the ability to pay for it. That happens. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, over diversification where you have thousands and thousands of positions in small accounts. But, uh, you know, basic diversification, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 uh, positions, you know, does uh, goes a long way to mitigate the fact that, you know, dividends are associated with equity and equity yep. is not a promise. It is an ownership stake. In fact, think think of the word return. Stop. Think about that. Return means you hand over your assets to the great provider of investment returns or whatever, and you get back interest or dividends. That's the return you get from those. That return, that, that's what, that that's the basic, although now we talk about total return with appreciation and all that, but return, return used to mean cash flows back. Actual cash flows, yes. not, not, not changes uh, in the share price of a right. uh, nifty, very nifty car company. But uh, actual cash return, very good. I like. I love the semantic point. I had had not thought about that. Um, so you know, shifting to a cash flow approach, and again, you make a point in your article that it applies to uh, real estate as well. But you have to do some smoothing and you know, careful management yep. of it, and fixed income as well, where you again you have to maybe less smoothing, but careful thoughts about whether inflation and risk associated with that. But in the end, the idea is that a person should approach the distribution opportunity, what they'd like to take, what they can take, whether it's a large endowment in trust uh, or, or a 401k, and again, those are my words, not yours, from the fecundity of the assets, not just what the price is in some mechanical formula based on today's share price on whether the stocks are up or down, yep. uh, you know, that, in, in summary. Yeah. Of course, 401k plans and IRAs and all that, I, I may miss the details, but you're required to make a certain amount of uh, distributions when you turn 70 or whatever. You, you're not you're not free to just take out the, the cash flows from these investments, but but still having the having the cash flows be more dependable, much more dependable than market values still helps. It's just useful to to invest with a cash flow focus if 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 you really care about 
what you get back and uh, about the consistency and and uh, safety is the wrong word uh, reliability of what you're going to get back no we we get and i get in my line of business a lot of pushback from this saying we've missed the greatest we would call it non-return but uh, uh share price appreciation capital gain uh, opportunity of uh you know, the modern error by taking a cash flow approach yep. to portfolio theory because it does leave out uh, all of those uh, those nifty companies. I won't call them the nifty 50 because I think we're down to maybe the nifty 10. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't view them as part of my investment universe. I don't consider them, they're, they're not even investment options. But um, for people who are uh, brought of a come up of age and in the CFA curriculum or the you know, University of Chicago blessed MBA programs or whatever the case may be. Uh, it's all about asset values. That's, uh, you know, that, that is a difficult pushback that in a market that is generally open and liquid, why wouldn't you begin to appreciate, uh, take, you know, take advantage of uh, these things that are clearly growing faster and the capital appreciation is higher. And therefore, since the market is liquid and open five days a week, it's not that big of a deal to sell assets uh, at a later point and realize the same distributions, but probably with more capital. I mean, that that's a challenge that I'm faced with pretty much every day. Uh, or at least the last couple of years. Back in the, in the great internet bubble, the Jeffrey Company had, had a, a wonderful director who's a professor at Harvard Business School. And the professor told me in 1998, 1999 or so, that, that uh, students who are graduating, uh, more than one student told him that, that they would never go to work for a company that paid a dividend because they were dinosaurs. <laughs> yes. Yes. And we're, 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 um, we're, I guess we are back at that period. All, all the hot stocks these days are a few of them earn profits, but, mo but the main, they also don't pay any dividends. So I, I, you know, I will mention the dinosaurs live for, I think it's 160 million years. And uh, I am often, uh, not often, but occasionally referred to as a dinosaur. And I'm increasingly taking that as uh, a compliment. So uh, I, I, I can I can deal with that. One of, one of the issues with this approach, again, you were very careful in your article, and I, it is very readable and I encourage people to look at it. And I, the link to the article will be on on uh, the website. But you are pretty careful to, to limit uh, your math and the reasoning to endowments and trusts because they are intergenerational in, yep. Uh, yep. endowment investors, uh, as opposed to, and you do introduce them, uh, spend down investors mm. uh, who are happy to eat into their capital. And that's, one could argue, where there's a flaw in my argument that, um, you know, I, I believe that your approach is applicable more broadly, um, but you could make an argument, aggressive argument, that the spend down investor really doesn't care and just will uh, spend capital and therefore only cares about the amount of capital. Have, do you, have you thought about that or wrestled with that? It's and being an endowment investor, sort of pure income cash flow focused. The spend down investors still have a, a long time period. If you're, uh, gosh, these days if you retire at seventy, so you say, I think the average person lives for twenty more years, and some will live longer. And the 20 years is a long, long, long time. I think I've seen, I can't quote you, that that in the aggregate, dividend-paying equities have had higher returns in the last 50 years than non-dividend-paying equities. I, the math in the, the couple books that I've written suggests that, though, I have to say, with each passing year, the uh, advantage diminishes. Uh, you now have about a third of the 
S&P 500 in infotech or infotech-like stocks that, yep. uh, that don't pay dividends. So yep. uh, when a, a decade ago, when one of my books came out, it was, it was really easy. Uh, a couple years later, another one came out. It had diminished. Okay. A couple years uh, by 2018, it had diminished even further. But it, it's okay. uh, it's if you if you go back long enough, it makes the point. But it is it become a harder argument to make. I wonder. I, I, the academics and 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 book writers, bless their souls, tend to treat universe of investors as though they're all the same person. Uh, uh, the uh, but uh, I think it's clear there are at least two types of investors. There say the the people who are who care about about getting a decent return back and then the uh gamblers the people who would rather be at the horse track but the horse tracks are all shut down so that so that the gamblers the gamblers will pay too high a price for exciting speculative unprofitable non-dividend paying companies so i'm even though i know it's happened with the the amazons and the netflix or whatever they've had great returns for, for a long time the uh uh, there tends to be reversion to the mean. Uh, the, said said the wise the wise man. Uh, the one thing that I think is different, and I'm going to take the opposite end here just for a moment, is that compared to the internet bubble, or even compared to the financial crisis where there was a fair amount of malfeasance, hmm. that some of the leading companies, and we won't refer to any particular names, but let's say they're instead of the Nifty 50, maybe the Nifty 15 now, uh, half of them, maybe even two thirds of them, are highly profitable cash generative businesses they are uh you know they they are mature they may have started during the internet bubble or thereabouts but they they now have significant cash they choose not to pay dividends but they're not the highly problematic businesses that we saw in those two first iteration two more uh iterations of bubbles that or, or market uh, drawdowns so you know I, I have to acknowledge the reality of the fact particularly during the pandemic that uh some of these companies are even more necessary. Their revenues are up, not down. The solidity of their market positions and the cash flows have been improved. Yep. They still don't pay dividends, and therefore they're anomalous over the last, say, 5,000 years of business history of not making distributions to company owners. But they, they aren't the same empty vessels that we saw during the um, internet bubble, and they're not the malfeasance-ridden maybe financial institutions that we encountered in the financial crisis. Uh, what do they do with their cash? Uh, stock buybacks, right? Yeah. Good. Let me talk about stock buybacks briefly. Please. Stock buybacks are a uh, product brought to you by people who have a conflict of interest. The executives who run corporations are these days, the last 20 years, increasingly compensated with, with either shares or stock options or bonuses based on, on the on share related things like earnings per share or relative price return during the last 12 months or something they have they are increasingly compensated by short term returns from their investments and they are they've been told by academics and then they and it's easy to believe because it's hard to go against the, the grain of the that they're doing their shareholders a favor and for the most part, they are not. Here's here's the trick: if stock stockbacks, uh, you're you're in the thick of the investment management business. I bet you know some companies that are good at stock buybacks, but most companies are bad at stock buybacks. Stock buybacks, and just an aggregate dollar basis, tend to happen in high markets and not low markets. If stock buybacks are really good, they would happen in low markets and not high markets. 
Indeed. So every every dollar that that the company uses to uh, for a stock buyback might be might be doing us maybe seventy five cents worth of good. It's not a dollar. So the the uh, you know the rising market over uh, the last ten years makes buybacks look good, uh, but that's uh, historically anomalous. I have seen a lot of stories, including recently in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, in favor of buybacks using academic studies yep. uh, from a, well, I won't name names, but uh, pointing out the efficacy of buybacks in the last, uh, really the last bull market. Yeah, and, uh, yep. if, in a rising market, a buyback looks smart. That is also historically anomalous. That kind of gets us off maybe to uh, the topic for uh, an, another episode, the uh, the buyback I did, I wrote my, uh, the second book on investing is basically called The Dividend Imperative from 2013, which largely went without notice, and that's fine, is a detailed analysis of buybacks and why they aren't a great idea. But it came out in 2013 when buybacks would have worked, yep, in, in yep. 2014 when buybacks would have worked, and in 2015 when buybacks w- wouldn't have worked. So uh, timing is everything, and uh, my my argument fell on deaf ears. But the buybacks are beneficial, but maybe they're only giving you 75 cents or 50 cents or 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 even a dime for every dollar they spend on it. It's 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 better than taking the money out in the the back parking lot and burning it. But <laughs> <laughs> but not much. So let, let me let me ask: in the aftermath of of your given your wise man status, the aftermath of this article and your conversations, you are uh, investors uh, listeners should know well connected within the industry, even though you you kind of step back a bit. Ha- have you gotten any you know feedback or pushback from this? Uh, Robert Merton, uh, Nobel laureate, uh, wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review in 2014 that said something similar. I have my my books, which all say similar things uh, about uh, you know view the portfolio in terms of what I call utility, <clears throat> which is not the same thing as uh, how the economists or finance use the term utility, but yeah. uh, it's basically the cash flows. And it's, uh, uh, there's a fellow at uh, at Morningstar. Uh, who uh, Robert Jeffries made similar points and so forth. So uh, there are voices out there, but they seem to be uh, uh, fairly isolated. And again, the more those nifty 15 behave the way they do, uh, you know, the less traction we're likely to get. Have you, have you had seen any change over the past five, 10 years in receptivity to this idea, or is it really just not the right time for that concept? <laughs> no, no change. Uh, going back again to this big Jeffrey family, the 400 family members, I, even though I'm retired, I still teach investment classes for them. And we pull up old papers that, that uh, I've written and other people have written. And, and uh, you mentioned Robert Burton having written a paper, uh, which you sent me a few a weeks ago. Thanks for that. I've never heard of it before. And I think, again, uh, we, we tell the family members, here's a piece written in the 70s. Here's a piece written in the 60s. Here's one written in the 80s. Here's one in the 90s. They're all very good pieces, and no one pays any attention to them. It's sad because so many – it's sad because the, the investing public has been thrust on their own. They used to be able to, to – uh, Work. People who worked for big companies used to have to find benefit plans where they'd work and then they'd get a certain promised benefit when they retire. Now they just thrown some money and say, "Put it in your IRA and do whatever you want with it." It's it's tougher life for the average investor, and it's tough to sift through all the the noise, the cacophony on, on Wall Street. And what's in on. which case, they're, they the path of least resistance are uh, index products and uh, almost whole market index products, which create ex- increasing exposure to non-fecund 
assets because yep. of the way the market's set up. Yep. As I said, about a third of the market right now in, in, uh, in Nifty 15. Yep. Uh, and uh, the, the cash flows associated with that portion of the market are getting smaller over time. So that it's it's uh, created a challenge. I too, I mean, we have a day job in this, and we have a very robust client list, and it's it's all fine. But clearly, in the market, kind of a public opinion, uh, it is a, a minority view to run assets in this fashion. There's enough for the Jeffrey Company family, and or the Jeffrey family, and and for uh, in my day job. But uh, it is definitely a minority view. Yeah. I was told by a Wall Street Journal, uh, Wall Street Journal journalist. There is nobility associated with pursuing a hopeless cause. And so, I, I, as Bill Murray might say from Caddyshack, I got that going for me. Uh, my guest has been uh, Jim Garland, uh, retired president of the Jeffrey Company. Jim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.